Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Dr. Steven Siragusa. Dr. Siragusa specializes in child, adolescent, and adult psychiatry with a focus on evidence-based holistic mental health care. He is board certified in general psychiatry by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and an active member of multiple professional medical associations. He completed his child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship at Los Angeles County USC Medical Center, where he served as chief fellow of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. He also received his certification of additional training in sports psychiatry from the International Society for Sports Psychiatrists in 2023. He is the newest member of the Cal Psychiatry team. Today, we talk about understanding the diagnosis and interventions for autism spectrum disorders. Welcome, Dr. Siragusa. Welcome. Hi, thank you, Josephine. It's nice to be here. Yeah. I'm glad we're talking today because you have a specialty in child and adolescent psychiatry. And today we were thinking about talking about understanding diagnosis and interventions for autism spectrum disorders. Yeah, it's an important topic. In my short time at Cal Psychiatry, we've had many patients already with referrals for possible autism or possible autism spectrum symptoms. So I think it'll be important to talk about a little bit more in depth so people get a better understanding of the condition and some of the symptoms and treatment. And of all our episodes, we actually haven't done one on autism. So I'm pleased to be able to talk about that and bring this to our listeners. So maybe we can start with the very basics in terms of talking about what is autism? What does it look like? How do you think about the diagnosis? Mm -hmm. It's a very broad general question, but maybe that a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of misconceptions about autism, especially in the age of social media that we're in today. People post all sorts of things on different websites about what symptoms that they're experiencing. And I think that speaks a lot to the variety and presentation that we see in autism. And it was recently reworded for autism spectrum disorder in the DSM, which is the manual that we use to speak with mental health providers fluently about the symptoms and presentations that we're seeing of different mental health disorders. So I tend to think of autism, the spectrum, not kind of in a linear fashion where people are either less autistic or more autistic. It's more of like a circle with different domains. And if you've ever seen charts that have like different gradients of different measures, like intelligence or abilities and that type of thing, I think of autism more like that, where it's like a pie and each cut of the pie is a different domain, whether it be like social interaction or repetitive interests or behaviors or sensory sensitivity, how they perceive the world, that type of thing. And everyone's a little bit different in how much of the pie they have filled in those different areas on the spectrum, as we call it. But at its core, autism is a neurodevelopmental condition. So it's something that we're inherently born with. It develops in early childhood. A lot of the features can be seen quite early on, usually around like 18 to 24 months. A lot of the the common signs are seen, but parents might notice features of autism even well before that, when a child is learning to how they interact with the world, how they process incoming information. But essentially, it's just different differences in individuals processing information, communicating with others, and how they interact with the environment 
and other people. So maybe we can talk a little bit about, you said it's sometimes as early as 18 to 24 months, you might notice some symptoms. What might be some things that a parent might notice? Yeah, so early developmental milestones, particularly in social communication and language capabilities are usually the first things that parents are clued in on. So if a parent had another child before who never was diagnosed with autism spectrum or doesn't have any of the symptoms, they might notice things a little bit quicker than a first time parent. But certain things that they would see are lack of like social smile, which develops pretty early on, like around six to eight months, where a child will respond to a parent or some other person smile and react with a smile themselves. In autism, this might be delayed quite a bit. Other things would be like eye contact with parents when they first start speaking and stringing together words into sentences, or even just like asking parents for other types of things. Got it. Okay. Well, thinking about autism spectrum disorders, you hear a lot of terminology that's out there. And I'm wondering if we could go through some of that terminology and you can help clarify what it means to the listener. Absolutely. I actually did a small survey on Reddit about this on the autism subreddit. So Reddit's an online community. It has a lot of different subboards about a specific thing. There's a quite a large autism subreddit. It includes maybe five to 600,000 people following posts on that board. So I, I did make a post uh, about six, eight months ago about different lingo that people with autism or people who identify as having autism about what they prefer to be called or referred to. And one thing that really jumped out was half people said they didn't really care what term that you did use. And about 40% of the rest of the people preferred the term like autism or a person with autism rather than autistic or autist or neurodivergent, these other terms that you might hear. When we think about how people refer to people with autism, there's kind of two big camps or domains. One is person first and one is identity first. So person first would be using person with autism, child with autism, adult with autism. And some people prefer those more person first type of terms because it feels like that really emphasizes their own identity outside of their diagnosis. So there's kind of a distinction. It's like they're with that, but it isn't who they are inherently. So they're making a statement really that that person isn't defined by their autism. Identity first would be like using the term autistic or neurodivergent, those types of things. Some people might prefer that. It's a little bit less common in the autism community because it kind of views autism as a disability or an issue or a problem. And that it's like a difference from like a general person or a neurotypical person you might hear some people refer to. So I tend to use person with autism or child with autism when I'm speaking with patients or with families. Do all people who have neurodivergence have autism? No. You, so like we talked about earlier, it's more of a spectrum in terms of these different areas or domains of symptoms, right? Like executive functioning skills, which is how people process information and attention, those sort of things. Social skills, interests or behaviors that they might be experiencing. Everyone's a little bit different. And the more prevailing like newer view of autism or the autism spectrum is almost everybody has something on that pie that we talked about earlier. 
that can be labeled more traditionally as being a feature characteristic of autism. And everyone's pies will look different. No two people with autism look the same. And traditionally, this used to come up with like low or high functioning, right? Those terms have kind of fallen out of favor in the, the community of people with autism because it implies that they're not functioning if they have autism, right? Low or even high functioning. It means that there is some limitations in their day-to-day functionality, which isn't a favorable view. Got it. Thanks for explaining. Well, wait, I wonder if we should move into interventions in terms of thinking about, so let's say a parent has a diagnosis for mm-hmm. their child. How do you think about interventions? How do you shape interventions? So it, it really depends on the age of the person or the child that we're seeing. And unfortunately, traditionally, this was pretty old in terms of when interventions tend to be most effective and impactful for longer term functioning day to day. We're getting a lot better, though, pediatricians, primary care providers, psychiatrists, and just the general medical community is getting much more efficient and and better at screening for a lot of the symptoms of autism earlier on. And I think just general knowledge, parents that are becoming more fluent in autism as a diagnosis has gone up tremendously, even in the last like 10, 15 years. And now it's social media and a lot of online tools and parenting groups and all of these types of things. People are catching a lot of the more finer points that would have been largely ignored in the past earlier. So to simplify the answer to the question, no two people with autism interventions will look the same. So it's as divergent as the diagnosis is and the symptom presentation. And it really depends on what areas people are most having issues with. What would some examples of interventions be? Most of the interventions for autism are aimed at social communication, cognitive skills, and reducing more problematic societal behaviors. So that would be like things like self-stimulation or aggressive behaviors or things like that. So those are kind of the major areas that most of the interventions target in some fashion. Common things you might hear would be like communication-focused interventions. An example of this would be speech therapy or augmentation and alternative communication or AAC devices. These are like Sometimes you could see this referred to as like a manned board or a child with autism would more commonly nowadays have an iPad with a lot of different stimuli or things that they would normally request or ask for, and they could push it and it would kind of convey that to other people in a socially appropriate way. Other than communication-focused interventions, there's behavioral interventions. The most common of these is ABA or Applied Behavior Analysis social skills training or social skills groups where individuals with autism will learn skills to navigate complex social interactions with people without autism and with autism. And then finally, there's a group of interventions that are kind of under the umbrella term of sensory integration therapy. And these are essentially to help people with autism who experience really heightened sensitivities to different like smells, textures, sounds, things of that nature, manage those sensory sensitivities that they might have. And commonly, they would work with an occupational therapist in that regard. Mm-hmm. And is it a desensitization or... So for the non kind of medical community, a desensitization would be like a behavioral therapy or a treatment aimed at exposing individuals to a certain stimulus that might be anxiety provoking or um, having a heightened response to. And in a slow manner that 
is mildly uncomfortable for the patient, but over time they get accustomed to that and they learn skills for dealing with that anxiety or that sensitivity. And to answer your question, it is in that kind of realm, the occupational therapist would use similar techniques as in like desensitization therapy. Okay. I'm thinking about moving out of the intervention discussion and into the discussion of what the different roles of different providers might be. So you, as a child psychiatrist, I'm curious what the psychiatrist's role is. Yeah. So traditionally, I would say the psychiatrist would come in very late in the picture. And more recently, psychiatrists are getting included in the group for interventions with autism earlier on. And a lot of times the psychiatrist, in my experience, I've played more of like the coach role for the parent in navigating all these separate things. So a common group of interventions that a child with autism who's having maybe some more difficulties in a lot of different areas would look like a psychotherapist or a psychologist both for diagnosis and then for any like behavioral interventions or therapy. They might have a speech therapist. They might have an occupational therapist. They would have a behavioral therapist or a, a BT or an ABA provider either coming to their home or going to their school or to a center a couple times a week to work on different skills or reducing problematic behaviors, those sort of things. Then the psychiatrist would be in there as well. And I usually would have a discussion with parents at most of the visits about how to navigate all those different specialties and which one they should maybe be focusing on a little bit more at that particular time in the child's life based off of their developmental level or what needs they're having. Got it. Thinking about medication, there's not one medication to treat autism. How do you think about psychopharmacological interventions? Yeah, this is a question that often comes up with parents, especially parents who don't have experience with autism before that particular child. They ask, is there a medicine that's going to make my child normal again, right? Or is there a medication that is going to help my child with like learning language or socializing more appropriately, those types of things? The short answer is no, there isn't a FDA approved medication that currently exists that targets the core features of autism. But our use of medications in this patient population is more so to treat either secondary things that may arise as a result of some of the symptoms of autism or to treat comorbid conditions like anxiety, depression, OCD, ADHD, some of which are fairly common to see in, in children or adults with autism. So most of the time we're treating comorbid conditions, but sometimes we do treat some of the results of the core symptoms. One example would be there are a couple medications that we commonly use to treat behavioral disinhibition or aggression associated with autism or other developmental conditions. Got it. Got it. So we're talking about the SSRIs. Uh, no, commonly we use antipsychotics in those situations, and it's usually reserved for really severe aggressive behaviors that are becoming problematic in the child's life. We'll often try to use these other non-pharmacological interventions first or earlier. And then we obviously have to look at why that aggressive behavior is occurring before we start a patient on a medication like that, because they do tend to come with a lot of side effects. So something like an SSRI or an alpha agonist or an ADHD medication might be more appropriate if that's more the root cause of the aggressive behavior. So we kind of rule out those other conditions when we do our assessments. Got it. Okay. I probably should have asked this in the beginning, but I forgot, mm -hmm. so I'm going to ask it now. Who makes the diagnosis? 
So it's really a team approach. There are a few standardized instruments that are commonly used. One you might hear of is the ADOS or the ADOS-2. That's probably the most commonly employed instrument for diagnosing autism, but it's really a clinical diagnosis at its core. And it's usually multifactorial, meaning it would have multiple providers providing assessments. We would want to see symptoms consistent across multiple domains of a person's life. So home, school, family, friends, work, those sort of things. Anyone really trained in mental health diagnosis and assessing conditions in like the DSM would be able to make a diagnosis of autism. A lot of times people are looking for like a definitive diagnosis or like a, a stamp of approval. Like, yes, I this person does have autism spectrum disorder. And I think more traditionally that was needed for like getting individualized education plans approved or obtaining other resources like speech therapy, occupational therapy, behavioral therapy, those sort of things. I think more recently, it's becoming easier to get these services with just like a clinical diagnosis made by a psychologist, a therapist, a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist. But there are certain clinics and organizations that provide the ADOS2 or those more definitive diagnostic instruments. Got it. Well, so thinking about where the listener might get help for this sort of thing. I know our listener base is not just in Los Angeles, but I know you're in Los Angeles. And so what sort of options might there be in our area? Yeah, this is a sometimes troubling point in other areas, right? Usually larger metropolitan cities or intercity areas have more resources for people with autism than not. I have practiced in smaller areas in California that don't have a lot of resources available. And it can be frustrating as a parent, as a provider to have to seek out either virtual opportunities, which aren't always as effective as in person, or travel far for those types of interventions that would be more accessible in like Los Angeles or New York City, somewhere like that. LA, we are lucky to have a plethora of resources available for families and children and adults with autism. So ones that people might have heard about are Regional Center is probably the most common. Regional Center is, they play a crucial role in providing services, support for people with not only autism, but other developmental disabilities, like including epilepsy as well, or intellectual disability, developmental disability, those sort of things. It's a nonprofit organization. It's funded by the Department of Developmental Services, the DDS, and they serve specific geographical areas. So there's a few in Los Angeles that provide really high quality services, but it's based off of where people live and and how accessible they are to the services at the center. Some common things that regional center would provide would be a diagnostic assessment, and they do use ADOS and other like instrument tools for diagnosis. They provide individual service planning for patients. So they'll look at all these different domains that we spoke about earlier and see what this particular person or child needs at that time. They could provide behavioral interventions such as ABA or behavioral therapy, educational support. They work with schools and provide educational programs to ensure that people with autism receive adequate appropriate educational services for their level and accommodations as needed. And respite care might be an option too for temporary relief for caregivers and families of a person with autism. Other than regional center, there's 
the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, which is CARD, I believe. They have several locations throughout Los Angeles. They mainly provide ABA, and there's a lot of different ABA agencies available in Los Angeles. And those are more just comprehensive about the areas that they service or if they offer in person or in home or in center types of resources or in school sometimes. There's the Autism Speaks Los Angeles division, which is a local chapter here. It's for information, resources, and support for families and children with autism. You might have heard of the Autism Society of Los Angeles, the Help Group, Exceptional Minds. UCLA has a clinic, I think it's called the Peers Clinic, where they provide social skills training. And I would say of all the interventions, that's probably the one that's the most difficult to find reliable providers for. So in my my own sessions with people with autism, I tend to provide a lot of social skills training, especially like in adolescence or when we're having a big jump developmentally for that person. So going from middle school to high school or graduating high school and transitioning into the workforce, things of that nature to help to help them with their social skills. Okay. Well, this is very helpful. I don't necessarily treat autism too often. And so it's helpful to answer my questions and (laughs) get a better sense of the treatment and the options that are out there for people. Before we say goodbye, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there's just anything you want to leave the listener with. I know it was such a broad topic. Yeah. I would say that the biggest takeaway for success for people with autism in their day-to-day life. First thing for parents to know would be early intervention is best and a multidisciplinary approach is best. So the earlier that you could have, if you do notice some concerns or your pediatrician is raising some concerns for developmental milestones, especially some of the ones we talked about, like socialization skills or language development, those sort of things. Having an assessment earlier on and getting linked with services at a younger age, patients with autism tend to have the best outcomes when intervention is provided earlier in a lot of these key domains. And that makes sense, right? Like a person is developing, we want to intervene if they're having some areas that are more problematic earlier than later when they're more developed, right? And then secondly, I would say a multidisciplinary approach would be necessary in a lot of cases. So having a psychiatrist, having a psychologist, having speech therapists, occupational therapists, feeding therapists sometimes, a behavioral therapist, having a big team of people and cross-communication with members of that team is really crucial and important because people might notice different things during different interactions with not only the child or with the family as well. And then, you know, using a lot of the resources that we have available in today's age and using reliable resources for obtaining information about autism and the different interventions and and things of that nature. Yeah. Well, thank you for being on. I really appreciate your time and sharing your expertise. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here, Josephine. And it was nice to speak a little bit about this very important topic. I agree. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been Mind Stories with me, Josephine McNary of Cal Psychiatry. With online psychiatry in California and 13 offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, ADHD, anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com and let us help you get back to your true self. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.